So good morning. That sounded like a sermon, didn't but it wasn't. It was just a notice, but something I'm really passionate for. And actually today I'm going to do something that might surprise you. I'm going to do something that I've never done in this church. I've been here for just over two years. And although we seem to talk about it a little bit, we certainly take up an offering every week. I've never once preached to you about money. But we are in a season of hospitality and discipleship. And however much, when I was praying and preparing for this week, as we go through the season of hospitality, these were the things that came to me. And I was speaking to a dear friend last night going, I actually genuinely don't want to preach on this because I don't want anyone to feel guilt or condemnation or to be under any illusion that this church is one of those churches that say, give us all your money. We want all your money. That's all we're interested in. We want your money. But what we are interested in is your salvation. What we are interested in is your blessing. So to give you a somehow watered down version of the gospel, to somehow start tearing pages out of God's word and say, this revelation is good enough, but actually, do you know, I'm British, so I don't want to preach to you about this stuff, would actually be selling you short. And I don't want to let you down, so today we are going to talk a little bit about money. I hope you don't mind. I want to tell you a quick story before I start that some of you will remember when I came, I shared my testimony with you. I I first became a Christian when I was 16 years old. But prior to that, I'd had a kind of Holy Spirit encounter uh, connected to like a Billy Graham crusade. It seems apt that they're, they're going to be doing that again really soon. Sadly, Billy Graham's obviously passed away, but his son is coming. Uh, We don't know if he's going to be like his dad or or like something else. There's question marks over that. But when I was five years old, I was at a a meeting like this, doing what five-year-olds do, and I was just playing with my toy cars and eating sweets under a chair. And the man at the front stopped the meeting. It's the first and only time I've ever seen it done. And he gave a full name prophecy. Richard Harvey, I need you to come forward. I had never been to that church before, I'd never been to that meeting before, I'd never met that man before. There is no way that he could have known my name. Now my mother, bless her, new Christian of seven days old, said to me, it can't be you, sit down, shut up, and I carried on playing with my toys. It took the guy five attempts before my mother actually said, okay, it must be you because no one else is going forward, come with me. We went to the front and this guy prayed for me. Just put his hand on my head, I fell over, that's what happens in church, weird church, happy clappy, okay. I fell over. It's an amazing story, isn't it? And when I tell that at conferences, especially leaders' conferences, it gets rounds of applause and hallelujahs. Not like you lot who just remain silent. (laughs) It's probably because you've heard the story before, obviously. Okay, but, but the point is that actually that story lacks an awful lot of stuff. It lacks any kind of commitment from me. I did nothing in that story. And the thing it really lacks is... I didn't, I didn't give my life to Jesus. Well, when I became 16, I had another Holy Spirit encounter. Many of you were actually there, although we didn't know each other. In Ipswich in 2000, it was a Bible week. And there was a song played that said, Holy Spirit, rain down, rain down on me. And I sang it, and I felt the physical presence of the Holy Spirit, like a drip of water, like a shower, touch me from the top of my head to the tip of my toes. And I, and I gave my life to Jesus for the first time with really profound words that said, Oh no, you've got me. You've got me. And I went all in. I went to all the youth groups and I went to all the conferences and I went to church. But it it lacked any real commitment. It was an experience. And you won't be surprised to know that I fell away from the Lord for a number of years because I had no foundations in my faith whatsoever. 
It was all to do with experiential faith. It was, if I can feel your presence, then I will worship you. But if I feel the presence of beer, I will worship beer. If I feel the presence of football, I will worship football. If I feel the presence of my girlfriend, yes, think of that as you will, then, then I will worship my girlfriend. There were no foundations in my faith. Until one day when I was 27 years old, which was not so long ago. <clears throat> a little bit longer than I'd like to think, but... When I was 27 years old, I was led in bed and, I, and God spoke to me. The audible voice of God spoke to me and said, have you had enough yet? And I, I, I said, no. I didn't have any interest in this thing at all because I was living my own life. And, and I mean, I'm not going to give you that and I was poor and I was on drugs and I was tied up in all sorts of addictions and my life was falling apart. So I just cried out to you, God, because actually my life didn't look like that. I was driving a brand new Mercedes, living in a brand new house that was almost mortgage-free. I'd just taken a round-the-world trip to Australia and I had a great career. And I've never been so unhappy as I was in that moment. I gave all that away, by the way, to do what I now do. And I am far more filled with joy today than I ever was back then. But when I gave my life to the Lord properly in that moment, he asked me again a few weeks later and said, have you had enough yet? And I said, yes. But here's the deal, God. He said, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it your way. Because we've done it my way already and it keeps failing. So if we're in, I'm in. I'm all in. I'm going to do it your way. So I want to read to you out of Matthew 6, 19, 24 today. I'm going to give you a little bit of translation in the middle. That if you have a, uh, an electronic version of an NIV, it will tell you. If you have a, a general version of an NIV, it will be written in the footnotes. But I'm going to add it into the story just to make sure that when we're listening to what the scriptures say, we really understand what the writer of Matthew was telling us. So Matthew 6, 19 to 24 says, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. The eye is the lamp of your body. If your eyes are healthy, pause. The Greek word implies generous. Now the English word doesn't. When we think healthy, we think Hillary has just had a hip operation. We're praying for her health. We would see health as get up and walk around again without infection. And we would see that as health. And we don't have a word that means kind of some sort of mixture between health and generous. So the translator of the Bible used the word health. But to understand this story, you need to understand both words. So I'm going to use both. If your eyes are healthy slash generous, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy slash stingy, the opposite to generous, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. It's funny how the story changes slightly then because we're talking academically almost up until that point. And then we suddenly, we, we, where did these two masters come from? It carries on to say either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is a Jesus quote. This is not, we can despise it because it's Paul, or it's Old Testament so it isn't relevant. Not that I believe either of those, by the way, but I've heard it spoken. These are the words of Jesus. 
I want to bring out a couple of things. Why do we start to use the word masters? And it says you cannot serve both God and money. Well, because God is your master. If you have chosen to give your life to God, he becomes your master. He's not a domineering master, but he's your God and your king. We just sung about it a minute ago. He's your master. Do you know the most commonly thing talked about in the Bible, other than love, is money. Not just in the New Testament, the Old Testament too. The second most common theme in the Bible is money. Why? Because the Christian faith is just secretly a business where the pastor gets to earn loads of money and he can have a private jet like they do in Nigeria and drive Mercedes and BMWs. No. No, no, I'm sure some people have corrupted the scriptures to gain those things. But the reason it's the secondly most common thing talked about in the Bible, because it is the number one thing that is going to trip you up. Love is the most commonly talked about thing because it's the thing you need most. Money is the second most common thing because it is what's going to trick you. It's what's going to trap you. It's what's going to separate you from the love of God. We're going to talk about the severity next of either you will hate one and love the other or you can be devoted to one and despise the other. It does not say you can love one and still be okay with the other. It says hate And in your mind and in your spirit, whatever psychologist you go to, whatever linguist you go to, they will say the biggest extreme is love and hate. They are closely connected because they are so distantly connected. They are the complete opposites to any scale. Jesus is not leaving any room for uh, interpretation here. He is saying you will love one and despise the other. It really is your choice. Remember the anonymity of your giving in this church, for example, or any charity that I'm connected with. I have no idea. I work with a charity called Africa Enterprise Trust, and they give away 50, 60,000 pounds a year. And the only person I know who gives to it is me, because I have asked repeatedly to never see, never see the income report, because it will change the way I perceive people. The one who was more generous will immediately, I'm I'm only human, I'm not going to lie to you. Maybe I'd be slightly warmer to that person. Maybe I'd be slightly cooler to the person who said they gave and I found out from looking at the list that they've been lying to me and they never did at all. Well, I don't want to perceive people by their giving. I want to perceive people because they're my brother and sister in Christ and because I love you. There's anonymity here. So when I speak this to you, I speak it out of love for you. I don't want you to fall over. I don't want you to be tripped up. I loved what Helen said last week and when we went for lunch afterwards it was amazing that she had not listened to the previous week's recording and in fact we hadn't spoken once about where we were as a church or what season we were in or what we'd like her to preach on or what problems we faced or what I thought people would need to hear she heard that from the Holy Spirit and I sat there and yes and amen the whole way through because I thought she spoke directly into the heart of the church and the phrase that I could not get out of my head and I've, I've horribly paraphrased it since because it was a a whole bit that she did but she basically said make sure when somebody comes and takes a bite out of you that you're juicy for those of you who weren't here I'm not going to waste your time and talk over it again but he was talking about the fig tree that Jesus cursed because it didn't bear fruit 
And Helen was saying, you need to take time out of your life to allow God. I, I actually challenged her on it afterwards because I misheard and misunderstood something she said. I said, did you really mean that it's our job to sit down and do nothing? And she said, that's not what I said, Ricky. What I said is you have to sit down and allow God to heal you. You have to sit down and allow God to be the one who makes you juicy again so that you can go out and be fruity. Because if you're not juicy and you're not fruity, somebody else will come along. We're called to make disciples and see people saved. Somebody's going to come along and take a bite out of you. And I know a number of you have had bad experiences of churches and this has happened. Somebody takes a bite out of you and you're full of pain. And you've been overworked and underappreciated and asked to do too much. They take a bite out of you and it's full of dust because you're dry, because we don't worship, because you're not in your word, because you're not in community and in fellowship where people love you and appreciate you. And Helen will say, no, no, you need to stop and, and, and be filled and allow God to, to transform you, to make you fruity again, to make you juicy again, so that, and she preaches on that so much, so that you've got something to give. And then stop again and be refueled. I'm looking at my favourite person on this subject. You stop and be refueled so that you can give again. You don't give and then run out and then go into burnout mode where you have to then go and have therapy or, or, or take a, a sabbatical or a retreat to recover. This is a health mode. We get, we get juicy first. Why do I say that connected to the previous week? Well, the final takeaway point from the previous week was we talked about the wedding feast, hadn't we? We talked about where, were you, were you the first set of guests that had been invited but didn't bother coming? Or were you the first set of servants that ended up getting killed but obviously not? We then talked about how we always perceive that story as obviously the first set of, of invitees were the Jews, the Jewish people, right? God's people, the Israelites. And they refused to come to the kingdom of God. And then they killed the first set of servants. The first set of servants was Jesus. Of course it was. Even a child knows this. So then the second set of servants were sent out to find us. And we, of course, are the second set of invitees. Because we're the Gentiles and we can come into the kingdom of God now because of this. And actually my challenge to you was to think of yourselves actually as the second set of servants, not the second set of guests. Because we are the ones that are now called to do the inviting. Remember, we're a season of invitation, of hospitality and discipleship. So we have now been sent out to invite in. I gave a word of warning though, because at the end of the story, which is often cut out when people preach, it says that one man who did come from the second set of guests didn't come in his wedding attire. So the king said, bind his hands and his feet and throw him out into the street. Why? Of course we don't preach on that. We don't like the reality of it. We love the saving grace of God. We love that Jesus' blood was enough for all of our sins. We hate the fact that we have to put on our wedding attire. We just want to say, well, this is me. God made me this way. We don't want to allow ourselves to sit down and have God change us, do we? Because that's what's going to happen. There's no guilt or condemnation coming from me. Well, there shouldn't be. If there is, it's only because I'm human and I messed up. But if you allow yourself to sit, you'll never be. The word of warning is, don't be that guy. Don't be that guy who came and just went, oh, I'll, just, I'll come for the free food. I'll come for what I can get out of this. And then I'll, I'll just go on my merry way. Because actually to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, he wants something better than that for you. So I want to use that phrase, all in. 
Yeah, and, and, and for those of you who've not always been in the church, all in is actually a gambling term. It means when you're, when you're playing poker and you've got some chips on the table or some money on the table and your cards are so good and you are so confident that you are going to win, instead of going, I raise you £10, I raise you £10, I raise... you can actually say, I'm all in. And you take everything you've got on the table and you push it to the middle. And you do it with such confidence that you hope everyone else backs down. That's where the analogy falls over. But it's the absolute confidence of the hand you have, the cards you have, that you decide, I'm all in. When I was 27 years old, led in my bed, speaking to God, I said, I'm all in. Yes, I used to gamble, used to play poker. I was rubbish at it. So please don't ask me to play poker with you. But I said to him, I am all in. I am all in, but we have got to do it your way, not my way. Do it my way, we're going to fail again. I'm going to fall away again. We're going to do it your way. I haven't been perfect since. I wish I could say I had. I make mistakes, I trip up. I fall out with people. I get angry, I get emotional. Some of you might think of me as a, a big tough cookie because I'm six foot one and kind of big and strong and I talk a really good game. But you know what? When you criticise me, it hurts. It hurts. When people come and say, oh, I don't like this and this was wrong on Sunday, it hurts. Because I'm human. And that might change the way I look at you too. Because I'm human. But the question today is, are you all in? This is what Jesus was asking in Matthew 6 to 19. And he is. It's not an analogy. This is not a parable. This is real. He is saying to you, you will love one and despise the other. And hate the other. Are you all in? And then he walks away. I want to give you some other examples in scripture. Luke 21, 1 to 4. This is all recorded for those that aren't taking notes. I'm going to bash through a couple of scriptures, so it might be hard for you to find them all. Luke 21, 1 to 4. Acts 4, 32 to 37. And then there's a few more if we have time. But in Luke 21, Jesus was in the temple. It says, Jesus looked up. He saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Jesus turned to his mates and he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. David Donoghue and I met up during the week because, as some of you know, we are planning to buy a building. And we are planning to take up an offering when we take up that building. It's going to need to be purchased. They're not going to hand it to us. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. But the intention is that we will purchase it. And we were talking about where we might raise that money from. Could we get grants? Could we ask friends to sponsor us? How much do we have in the bank already? Who's going to pledge what money to us? And just as a bit of a quip, at the end, I quoted this scripture. I said, you know what I fear the most? And when I say fear, it's a funny colloquialism. It's a, it's a term I use. What it means, it really excites me. It scares me, but it excites me at the same time, is not the person who can come and say, there's five grand. Because I had, I had 100,000 in my bank account, and here's five grand. That doesn't scare me. I'd be pleased for it, I'd be grateful for it, and if you can do that, thank you. But it doesn't scare me, 
What scares me is someone who comes with their two copper coins. Someone who comes and says, I am not going to have a family holiday this year because I am sold out for what God is doing in this town and I'm going to put my family holiday into the offering. Somebody who comes to me who says, I've just emptied my bank account. Says to me, I've emptied my wallet. I've put in literally my two copper coins. Perhaps it is four pence. Perhaps that really is all the money you have in the world. And you put that into the offering. That scares me. Because when it goes into the offering, God will multiply it to the hundreds of thousands that we need. Because God is a God of miracles. In this, he is asking, are you all in? Now, of course, in Acts 4, which is what I'm going to read next, it tells you what the New Testament church did. We often talk about tithing and money in church from an Old Testament perspective. But in Acts 4, it said, All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own. But they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that all they had, that all that were there, no needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sale and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, who the apostles called Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So in the New Testament church, Jesus is now reascended to heaven. And the early believers looked at all of their possessions, all of them, houses, cars, Rolex watches, bank accounts, and said, none of that is mine. It's all collective. Why? Because the New Testament revelation of money is that it's all his. Not 10% of it. All of it is God's. That creates a dilemma for me. As somebody who loves you and cares for you, genuinely loves you and cares for you and, and a reader of the New Testament scripture because do we want to take this literally and say well actually buying that new church building is going to be easy because you've all got to go and sell your houses now and all of your possessions and empty all of your bank accounts and bring it and put it in the, in the, in the plant pot at the front and that will be more than enough to buy that church building and make sure that nobody's in need and that nobody's poor and everybody has something to eat no, I am not telling you that. I'm telling you that everything you own is God's. And I am telling you, not asking you. I am telling you that everything you own is God's. And he wants to know your heart. He wants to know if you are in or not. And this is really bad timing because I know just before this I talked about doing a youth offering for Massey Church and Children's Work. That is not connected to what we are talking about today. Today I want your hearts to be changed in the way you perceive money. Because I don't want you to be tripped over by money in your faith or in your faith journey. I am not asking you to give me your money. So if, if it's all his and he's asking to test your heart, well, what other scriptures could we look at that might give us the wisdom to know what we should do with our money? Now, I'm actually convinced that I know somebody who did this, who did take this Bible verse literally, did sell all their possessions, did give it all to a local church, who looked after it and did really well with it. And did lots of good work with it. And do you know what? That person was incredibly blessed. Within two years, they were wealthier than they ever were before. If I were to preach that to you today, that's called prosperity gospel. 
And that's called heresy. And I will never preach that in this church. If anyone else preaches in that church, they will never be invited again. Because that's saying, it's like a, it's like a fruit machine. If you give me £10, I'll give you 20 That's not how this works. This is a heart issue. I want to quote somebody I quoted earlier on. Billy Graham is probably one of the most famous Christians who ever walked the earth. And when he was asked about this subject, because it is a very tricky subject. Remember, the second most commonly talked about thing in the Bible, for a reason, it is what's going to trip you up. Billy Graham, when asked about this, said, We have found in our home, I love that. He didn't immediately turn to the scriptures or to the theologians, which he would have known by name. Do you know he met every American president that ever lived during his lifetime? Profound man. Answering one of the most difficult and complex questions in church history starts the answer with, we have found in our home, as of thousands of others, that God's blessing upon the nine-tenths, the 90%, when we tithe, helps it go further than the ten-tenths without his blessing. A tithe means 10%. Billy Graham was saying that when we give our 10%, we somehow end up more blessed than if we'd retained the 100%. This man's smirking at me, so I'm going to embarrass him. Brian actually has a testimony that when he first started to tithe, he thought he couldn't afford it. When Ricky started to tithe, he thought he couldn't afford it. And we both laughed at the similarity of the testimony, is that when we started to tithe, we realised we couldn't afford not to. So much was the blessing that God gave us because we were faithful to him. Not because we gave, I have no idea what 10% of your pension is. Probably more than 10% of my wages. But it, it doesn't matter what it is. It's about the heart issue. He's laughing because he's the only one who knows the answer to both of those, I guess, um, as a trustee. But it's a heart issue. And Billy Graham was saying that uh, this is not about me agreeing with uh, Sue. It's both a trustee now and an elder's wife. Me saying, Sue, I trust you with 10% of my wages. That's not, that's not what I'm doing. It has absolutely nothing to do with Sue. And in fact, if it were to do with Sue, or Brian, or David, or Tony, wherever he is, any of our trustees, or Liz, you used to be a trustee, it's not about my trust to you, it's about my trust to him. Because this is, this is where kingdom economics and world economics separate. The world economics say that you are giving your money to the church. And actually, if you write a cheque, you have to rake it out to Living Word Community Church. So it looks, it looks a lot like you're giving us your money. But you're not. You're giving your money to him. And you're saying you trust him with your money. Now, he may have delegated that authority to human elders by choice and in consensus community, not just one elder that stands up and says, I'll take, I'll take control of all the money, because maybe we might be tempted to take some of it for ourselves. You're not saying you trust us, you're saying you trust God. So to give you an example, somebody once said to me, oh, I, I tithe, I tithe, I, I just don't tithe to the church. I tithe to the dog's trust. I said, you're wasting 10% of your money every month. Unless you really love dogs and you can afford to give away 10% of your income, that's lovely. Carry on, I like dogs. But you're not giving it to God. If you're saying, I am going to take control of my money. That's not tithe. Tithe is when you give it to God and trust him with it. But once you've given it, it's not yours anymore. You don't have control over it. But you're also trusting that he will make the 90% that's left 
somehow greater and make it more and better than the 100%. It's called sacrificial living. I'm going to talk to you, I've just used the word tithe, and as I said, tithe is an Old Testament word. It takes a little bit more explanation than this, but it basically means 10% of your income. In modern day terms, would you agree with that, fellow elder? 10% of your income. In the Old Testament, I'm going to read to you from Malachi 3, 6 to 12. And then for those of you that want to chase me out of here with a pitchfork afterwards, please feel free. I'm probably bigger than all of you. There's also a verse from the New Testament that I'd like to share with you, not about tithing. Just about how you should view money. Well, in Malachi 3, it says, I, the Lord, do not change. Interesting for those who want to have that argument about it being an Old Testament principle or a New Testament. God never changed. He never changed his attitude towards money. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Doesn't say dog's trust. Says storehouse. So that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be not enough room to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delighted land, says the Lord. It says, bring your tithe into the storehouse. And all that what the Old Testament does is describe what tithe is and how you should view money and how you should trust God with your money. And then and Malachi 3, for those of you who don't know, is, is the second to last Bible verse book of the, New Test, of the Old Testament. This is how he wraps it up. Is, is You've all gone away from me again. And they're saying, how can we come back? And God is saying, this is a good place to start. Why? Because money is the thing that's going to trip you up. He goes for money. Because what did they do? Lord, Lord, you're our God. You can have my life, but you can't have my money. Well, last time I checked, money was a big part of life. Can't eat without it, can't live without it. Money is a part of life. If you want to give your life to God, for those of you who know him, I'm going to quote Alan Scotland. Nay? Anyone heard of Alan Scotland? He's our apostle. He's our overseer. He's my pastor. And he says... God's view on money is that if you can trust me with your life, you can trust me with your time. And if you can trust me with your life, you can trust me with your money. That's not Alan who's saying that. That's God who is saying that. So for those of you who want to tithe into the dog's trust, for those of you who want to take your money and say it's mine, so be it. Your call, your life, your choice. But don't tell me it's scriptural. Don't tell me it's God's desire for your life, because we will fall out. On the Billy Graham website, where I got that earlier quote, it said this might be helpful for those who are struggling with the concept of how to handle money in a New Testament revelation. It says, on the first day of every... Oh, sorry, 1 Corinthians 16, for those who didn't get it the first time. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, save it up, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. There you go. If you don't like 10%, if you don't like the word tithe, do that instead. 
What does it say again? It says, on the first day of every week, or for those of you who are paid monthly by backs, every month, each one of you should set aside a sum of money, your choice, I'm not going to tell you, in keeping with your income. I mean, you might choose a random number, like a percentage. It might be 10%, might be 5, might be 15. That is between you and God. In keeping with your income, save it, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. If you are not interested in what the Bible has to say generally about money, that is pretty good wisdom. I'm sat in front of a cap representative here who's all about saving up money and setting aside money in your bank account. Ultimately, your life with your money is between you and God. And I want to make that perfectly clear so that I have not stood here for the last 30 minutes and said, give me your money. Not interested, if I'm honest. What do I want? I want your hearts. I want this community and this family and this church to be so sold out for God that there is nothing that would separate us from the love of God. Nothing. What does the Bible tell us the first thing is going to separate us? Money. So some uncomfortable truths. We've got two minutes. Does anybody remember the, the story of the rich young guy who came up to Jesus and said, I want to follow you, Jesus. And Jesus said, go and sell all your possessions and come follow me. That's not the uncomfortable bit. It's a bit weird. We've just heard it in Acts. It says, go and sell all your stuff and come follow me. The next bit says that the rich young ruler was sad and walked away. Do you know what it doesn't say? But it's there if you see it. Jesus let him. Jesus let him. You can stand there and quote Romans and Acts and the Gospels to me all day long. You can quote different theologians and scriptures to me all you want about how we are saved by grace alone so I can do whatever the hell I please. Jesus let him walk away. The parable he told about the wedding feast. Do you know the bit we always cut out? He had his hands and his feet tied and he was thrown to the street. You are saved by grace alone. But you are saved for a purpose. And with a higher calling and with a higher revelation. And I want to say to you, once again, don't be that guy who gets his hands and feet tied and thrown out into the street. I want to repeat what Helen said last week. I said, make sure you stop and be quiet. Allow the Holy Spirit to... I'm going to pray for us now. Allow the Holy Spirit to minister to your very heart about money. I don't particularly, if I'm honest, want you to come and ask me what I think you should do with your money. If you have questions, we have a whole team of elders and wives that will be happy to help you. But this was incredibly difficult for me to prepare this week. Because I did not want to talk to you about this subject. Why? Because it's the number one thing that's going to trip us up. Because you ain't going to like hearing it as much as I don't like preaching it. So we don't want to fall out. But there is a truth. So let's just leave it with that final point and I'm going to pray. It says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. Heavenly Father, we ask right now, immediately, for your grace. Lord, we see your wisdom in your everlasting living word. That you know money is a sensitive subject and you know that when you wrote it that we would still be reading it in 2020 in Basildon. 
Lord, I, I pray right now for grace and for mercy as I've been praying all week that this might be received and delivered well. And with love and with grace and with mercy, we accept your word. Lord, we thank you for all that you did for us on the cross. We thank you that we are saved by grace and not for works, not by works, that we are saved for great works. Lord, we thank you for what you did on that cross. We say it was enough. Lord, we thank you for all that you are. We thank you for that open invitation that we might come into your throne room. Holy Spirit, I ask you right now to come and baptize every one of us in the name of Jesus. Holy Spirit, wash through this place afresh. Remove anything that might, anything, not just money, but anything that might get in between us and your love and your embrace. Jesus, we love you and we trust you. We lay our whole lives down again at the foot of your cross. Lord, I, I'll, do it, I'll do it metaphorically for those with their eyes shut, but really for those with their eyes open. And I'm going to lead with my wallet. I lay my life at the foot of your cross, Lord, and I say my money is your money. Because all of my money was already your money. Lord, correct in my heart where that should be going, and my brothers and sisters too, but Lord, I know I'm the biggest sinner here. Lord, whether that is to, to help my neighbour with a food shop, Lord, whether that is to tithe, whether that's to tithe here or in our home churches, wherever we might be from, Lord, whether it is to, to stop fretting about our debt and trust you, whether it's to stop counting the pennies. I always think of Scrooge McDuck that do that. But I remember when I was very, very young, I got into credit card debt. And every day I would pull the receipts up and the receipts and the receipts. And I was, I was so obsessed with the amount of debt I was in. It controlled every thought of my heart, every thought of my mind. And it separated me from you, God. So this is not just about tithing, God. This is about money. And this is about being close to you. Jesus, we love you. We lay all of those things at the foot of your cross and say, please come and minister to us. Correct us where we need correcting. Give us grace where we need grace. Give us mercy where we give mercy. Lord, Lord, come and give us the miracles in our finances when we do need those miracles. If we have people here who are struggling with debt, Lord, let them, let them see a way forward. Lord, if there are those that are trying to save up for their first homes, Lord, give them miraculous provision like you have provided for me these last two years. I now know wholeheartedly that I can trust you for my income. I'm never going to question my tithe. Lord, I love you and I trust you. And my prayer is that you, you break these barriers, you break these chains, you break these controls over our lives. Lord, we love you and we trust you. We give our lives back to you again. In Jesus' name. Amen.